And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the stream. This is actually a podcast. We've been doing this ongoing series, Awakening, covering Awakening from the Meaning Crisis by John Bervakey. Welcome all. It's another Watch Party episode for episode 48. So we're live on Twitch. We're live on YouTube. We are live on Facebook. You can watch us wherever you like, and you can always hear these full episodes after the fact. Go to anchor.fm forward slash actual lie for links to all the places, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, all of the podcast networks. We are on it. So you can find links to all those places, or you can just Google actual I podcast. So here we are. Hey, and I'm, uh, I'll be in the comments tonight. So uh, if any of our subscribers are in there. And the I'll YouTube side there. of things? YouTube, yep. right on. Cool. Yeah, everything seems to be working. Sweet. I'm gonna keep. Yeah, my we'll try and down. keep track. I'll, I'll watch the Twitch and the Facebook. Yeah, thank you guys for joining us, and for all those of you that have been hanging with us through this entire series, thank you so much. It's been uh, 48 or 47 episodes so far. Tonight we are covering episode 48 of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis on Corbin and the Divine Double. Let me actually just do a quick share up on the socials. Well, we're we're in the home stretch, guys. I think That's it's right. what like three episodes till the end. Yes, yes. Oh, uh, you know, I won't say I'm looking forward to the end, but it feels like an accomplishment. I'm really looking forward something. to what comes after. Yeah, we're going to be setting up a new studio. We're going to be covering, you know, everything that comes after Awakening and Verbeke. You know, out there, he's he alone has had some amazing conversations since this series was released with people like Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Pajot, uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger, Ian McGilchrist, among others. And so we'll probably cover some of those. We'll probably look at some of his other new series. I know he's releasing uh, Solutions to the Meaning Crisis lecture series. I know that he also has his After Socrates series. And I mean, there's just in this area of covering the meaning crisis and how we may awaken from it. There's a lot more people besides John Berbeke that we can look at, like Jordan Hall and Brandon uh, Graham Dempsey and other people like that. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to explore further outside, these, outside this initial uh, area that we have covered thus far. This is the primer for all the rest, you know? That's right. And this has been something of a boot camp for ourselves, too. We were just talking about that. It's going to be amazing to finally finish this series and get into the new studio and see what happens guys stay tuned because now we're going to be free to just really look at whatever comes to mind whatever we see that week or something that we could have watched eight months ago that we just remembered that was just well, you know, particularly compelling we'll be able to cover whatever we want and we're going to go deep yeah and, and looking at things from the perspective of where we are now you know Instead of just being like, this thing happened, aren't you angry? It's like, okay, this thing happened. What does it mean? What are the responses that any of sides of whatever argument are going to have? What do those response, where do those responses come from? How do we have those responses and then have the wherewithal to step back and look at them? You know? Um, because you know, if you if you watch well, watch the news, but you know, if you pay attention to current events, like really pay attention, yeah, you're going to be angry. You're going to be responsive. It's going to get you. 
Um, and rightly so, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of things to be angry about, but you know, what we've been talking about and studying through this is why your brain has those responses and what can you do to ameliorate the negative responses and optimize the better responses. Um, so you can have a better relationship with who you are, where you are. You know, Amen to that. Sometimes you can't really do nothing about where you are, so then you can focus on the who you are and why. Um, and then, well, manifest and change the where you are, whether physically or emotionally or spiritually or intellectually. All the Lees. Yes, yes. How to return to the being mode and be there more consistently in our lives. We are so caught up in that having mode, trying to acquire things to distract ourselves from our thoughts, from our minds, not necessarily from the world around us. Caught up in the having mode, but not using the having mode for what it's supposed to be used for. We're, we're in a modal confusion. We're Absolutely, confu- right. confusing the having mode for the being mode when... Yeah, know, so it's yeah, like trying well to f- f- fulfill what we need to be with the need to have. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, mm-hmm. having is important because you need to have water to keep from dying of thirst. I get it. But when when all that is satiated, your hunger, your thirst is satiated, where are you left at? Are you still fighting for the having in the instant mode or are you participating in the, the being mm-hmm. mode? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Stepping out of the palace to reference... Uh, earlier episodes about you know prince siddhartha and what he had to do mm-hmm. the palace being the having mode you know every one of his having mode needs were met but his being mode <laughs> was not had not even been explored and once yep, he realized yeah, that there yeah. was a being mode didn't even know that there was a being mode yeah that's 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 the trip right there yeah. that's right so on our last episode let me pull up let me pull us on to this other screen here guys got some notes so we got some notes from mark mulvey who Took notes on the entire Awakening series, and our last episode was episode 47 on Heidegger, and he highlights one of John Verbeke's quotes from each episode, and here's one. Understanding being, or the ground of being, as a supreme being is the deep forgetfulness that has us existentially adrift in modal confusion, fundamentally misframing our relationship to being, and therefore being subject to a disconnected disconnectedness from realness which is at the heart of the meaning crisis what he's saying there understanding being or the ground of being as a supreme being is to separate ourselves Mm -hmm. from it It it's to think in the two worlds well there's this self and then there is that thing duality yeah you know so there's in in classical uh christianity for instance Christ dwelleth in you. You know, he lives through us. God's love is perfected through us. There was an understanding that God is one with all things and is transcends it all. And that would be more like panentheism. And well, and to use the uh, the language of this series, um, the, the, the God, the almighty thing is actually not a thing because it is of no thingness nothingness but no thing it is not a thing it is not any one thing so that's right it is and beyond things it's the it's the creative force behind all things and it's suffused through all things it's 
Yeah, and, and it's everywhere and it's beyond at once. So I guess what if it, we looked at it from a panentheistic yeah, perspective, I guess what is being said here is by we confused it and we started thinking by of by calling something the supreme, we're putting a box of supreme around it. And as as we've been learning through this, um, and there can't series, be any one supreme, and there is no any one box either. The boxes always expand. The framings That's right. always expand. It's the source, yeah. call it God. And it's not separate from you. Is is infinite, is limitless. Yeah. So, and to confine it and say that there's this supreme being up there that is separate from us mm-hmm. puts us into this dualistic framework. And we end up fighting over our versions of God rather than recognizing that this transcendent source transcends all definition. It is the source of all things and it is infinite. It cannot be described. It cannot be contained in any one ideological interpretation it's yeah. so it's there, beyond all of that there was a and i'm going to butcher the saying so i'm going to paraphrase it but there was a um a hindu description of this relationship of ourselves with the quote-unquote supreme um we are the lotus petal toes or toenails of god so the, the idea is you and yourself all of that makes you is that now, mm-hmm. you yourself are not all of that, no. but all of what makes you is that. Yes. And I use that And you because... are intrinsically interconnected with that, yeah. but that is, but of course, in our particular mode, we are in an individual... Well, how do I have that experience? That's how right. do I have that experience? And that's where Heidegger was yeah. trying to get at, was saying that metaphysics throughout history seems to have made a mistake... And he felt somewhere along the way where it started to think of things in separate terms and dualistic, yeah. you know, well, that I, there's a supreme being and then there's us. I, kinds th- of I think also is you know he like his interpretation was as far objective as you could possibly put the objective standard. There's a problem mm. with that though. We're not objective creatures. We're mm. inherently subjective creatures. Yeah, trying yeah. as hard as we can to get an objective lo- look at life. Yes, yes. And here's here's a great paragraph on that from Mark's notes. Central to Heidegger's work is his notion of dasein, being there. This refers to our being. Notice that this is an inheritance from Christian tradition, that we are in the image of God. As Heidegger is suggesting that by questing into our being, we will get a deeper understanding of being itself. Why? Because for Heidegger, our being is the being whose being is in question. Sounds confusing, but hear it this way. We are the type of being who actually questions who and what we are in a way that makes a difference to who and what we are. Yeah, and I don't think he was I don't think he was wrong in that. No, that point. um, As far as that point goes. Um, So he's attempting to respond to the meaning crisis. Yeah, and and you know that like I would say that idea is the trailhead depiction of the trails and its off branches Mm. and Mm. maybe like you know in his case because he did fall prey to some very sick ideology maybe it was the map that he was looking at wasn't as accurate as he thought he it was or he couldn't see far enough down the path he Um, himself his his ego was yeah yeah, yeah, it was it was you know became you know a party member of the nazi party even though you know, he was trying to think how to free yourself of those types of 
short followings. Mm-hmm. But and Tillich, who studied Heidegger and carried out Heidegger's work even further in in his own way, uh, was a Jew who escaped the Nazis. Was so that Tillich? I believe that was Tillich. Tillich yeah, I think on that was being, Tillich. who wrote on being. Yeah. So yeah. it's like you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, right. You know, sometimes like sometimes you have to separate what the intellect who came up with something became became hmm. to try to figure out what they're getting at whether what they're getting at is worthwhile or not you know because sometimes it's worthwhile and i think some you know some of these ideas very well have may have been very worthwhile but you know like you know say you take like marx yeah i get what he was going at i just don't think it was worthwhile same thing with uh hegel you know I, yes mm-hmm. i get what he was trying to get at but i don't think it was worthwhile but only separating you know, say the individual from what they were getting at. Have I been able to look at what they were getting at to be like, okay, I see what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. And they make a judgment of whether it's working or not, or has worked or not. That's the nice thing about history is we've got stories about things that have happened in the past and you can be like, okay, well, you know, it didn't work. I see where you're getting at, but I think you came to a wrong conclusion, whether it be foolishness or intentionally coming to the wrong conclusion. What is it? Um, you know, understanding the material and reasoning wrong, which is, foolishness or and then there's not understanding the material mm-hmm. i think that you know mm-hmm. a lot of people understand the material and reason wrong doesn't mm-hmm. mean i shouldn't read it and try to figure out what the hell they're talking about right you know right for good or for bad you know and you know history is just a story it's very you know on- ongoing and accurate in some cases an inaccurate story but it's still a story nonetheless yes yes so the Kantian thing in itself, that was an interesting point, can be replaced by this new notion as the thing beyond itself, which Verbeke is putting forth here. Everything is both shining into our subjectivity, so everything in our awareness shines forth with salience, stands out to us in a subjective way. We're always feeling things subjectively, but it's also withdrawing beyond our capacity to frame mm-hmm. it at the same time so, so the more the more we see and experience the further the horizon gets away from us yes any subject yeah. or object that you look at is can be interpreted at infinitum just on and on and on out into forever so that horizon is constantly withdrawing from us just as it is simultaneously shining forth to us and both of these aspects contribute to the realness of an object or an experience. And it's what makes it really real. And in reference, he was talking about like, you know, like a good open-ended sandbox game or VR game, you know. Um, if you want this feeling, it has to always open up itself past the boundary of what you can see and experience as well as shining in mm-hmm. to your subjective experience, everything that is from it. Um, you know, like a, like a good sandbox game is really, really good in the beginning because you haven't yet seen the horizon and what's shining in is salient enough for you to have uh, a, a vivid and 
novel experience, right? Yeah, and as well as something like deep within you. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the first yeah, time yeah. you played Morrowind or, or Oblivion, the first sure. time is like it grips you in and you haven't yet seen the horizon of how, you know, how far you can go on the map limits or how far you can go with like min-maxing something. Or the or, first time you saw you Lord know, of the Rings, you don't know exactly where yeah. the story's going yet or yeah, how they're going to yeah, depict yeah. it. So, yeah. in that, so that in, sense of wonder is quite a lot. In those that moment. moments of when you're still early with the, the material, you get that open very realness mm, yep. and in a good a good story or a good game or a good movie is something you watch over and over and over again or read over and, and over again and still up. get that yeah. feeling yeah yeah um it still evokes that sense of wonder yeah. and that's which is something both subjective sacred. and objective and at objective, the same time yeah. this interplay yeah. of being outside the book reading it knowing that you're outside of that book but mm -hmm. it keeps revealing to you and retreating away from you and hiding little secrets from you as you it's read like it. the creators have to have come from a place of wonder when they created that scene yeah or that that yeah. game that movie yeah. that piece of art and then you can in turn experience that yeah well yeah yeah interesting there so here's let's go back uh to the dual screen here and look at this section so mark mulvey notes Returning to the being mode versus the having mode. So now we're talking about returning to beingness. There is a tradition of God being understood as the supreme being, i.e. from the having mode perspective, mm -hmm. as being a being that grounds and makes all other beings. So it's like the separate creator, old guy in the sky that judges and makes. And this is a fundamental mistake, according to Heidegger known as the problem of ontotheology. And, you know, this is the way that we started reinterpreting Christianity in the more recent centuries versus how it was when it was originally yeah. created. And so trying to understand being theologically as a supreme being, we're trying to do this. And Heidegger says that there's a deep connection between this understanding of being in terms of the supreme being or God and nihilism. In some ways, this is Heidegger trying to articulate Nietzsche, who was a big influence on him. So understanding being or the ground of being as a supreme being, ontotheology, is the deep forgetfulness that has us existentially adrift in modal confusion. Back to the original quote, fundamentally misframing our relationship to being and therefore being subject to a disconnectedness from realness from the reality of the situation of life we find ourselves in which is at the heart of the meaning crisis we think of ourselves as separate from this planet as separate from one sure. another as separate from our ideas of god and then our ideas of god are fighting over each other or fighting against well, each other for which version is the best and and when it comes down to you know the personal human level is like now we see ourselves so separate that we are some parasite Right. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and we've talked about this before, like this idea that humans are a cancer, and then that gets popular, and people recycle that rhetoric, and they, they push it out on but, social you know, let, media. Let's because go further back to like somebody said it, and it sounded clever. Um, well, and go, I can and I can relate to that too. But it's but we're 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 forgetting that well, we what, are. What's better, cancer or stewardship? I rather look at us as stewards than. We also have the yeah, and, and that's are, responsibility. Cancer just cancers. We have this, you know beautiful potential to be also stewards of our environments and there's such a mix of humanity out there i think most of for the most part we seem mostly good but the bad apples certainly pollute the perception of the whole bunch 
Well, you know, the na- the nature of the apple is to rot. And if you right. put them all together in one basket and you don't do things to keep yeah. them rotting, so, they're going to rot. An apple doesn't exist without an apple tree. An apple tree doesn't exist without soil, without earth, without Which the sun. Which is the rot of something else. Without the cosmos. <laughs> all, all things are actually one. We are intrinsically interconnected with everything and everyone around us. We're trading atoms as we speak here with the chair, with sure. each other. Yeah. So all of that is what's actually happening underneath. We are outgrowths of this planet. We are like the thinking aspect of the universe that has come into reality. And, and perhaps that is what a universe ultimately or can per, do per, at, perhaps, on its highest level is to create thinking, well, perhaps, self-reflective extensions the, of itself. Perhaps the quality of the universe that thinks subjectively. Mm. Yeah, because if, if, if we're to talk about, you know, God... That is the thing that is both subjective and objective completely. We can fantasize or um, hypo- well, hypothesize uh, right. or imagine, mm. create an image of something that would be like enough of the objective that we can strive towards it. Mm-hmm. But never will we attain that. We are not that side of the thinking universe. We can never say that ours is the one and only, and this is what it's exactly precisely what it's like because if we're honest with ourselves we know that we if can, there is a god then it would be naturally limitless it would be the alpha and the omega it would be omnipresent our, our, our fingers aren't wide enough to point directly at all of it but we can point to points of it yes and that's that's you know. that's the best that we can do so as long as we in all of our various religions and wisdom traditions and cultures can't see source or God as something ultimately transcendent and not, not separate either. Und- that, that's the thing is it's, it's not a separate, not separate. It's yes. a relationship. A relationship is a, well, something a that can be known so deeply in every moment through every person we meet through every place that we visit and every event that we interact with we can always get to know the source of this reality more, but we'll never get to the end of it. And, and as, it, as it should be, it'd be terribly boring if we knew that there was an end to that horizon that is always yes. going away from us. It wouldn't be real anymore. No, would it be if right. we had an end? Yeah. <laughs> as yeah. far as what we're talking about in this series goes, you know, we could be wrong. We could be interpreting what Verveke is saying wrong, or Verveke could be wrong. And all the people who have been talking about this for eons could be wrong as well. Could be, could be. We might as well look into it, understand why, why we're talking about it. What are they getting at? What's being got at? Yeah. Questioning the being Mm. that is, you know, your being, which is the very being that is in question. So basically, with Heidegger becoming a Nazi versus Tillich, like, getting out and being like, you know, I got to leave because, you know, ain't the thing. The issue with Heidegger is the confusion of expertise with wisdom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he was an expert in this and in, in thinking of this, but he didn't have the wisdom to realize how wrong he could be. Right. Heidegger seemed he, to have... He may be reasoning right, but yes. coming to the wrong interpretation. His self-congratulatory of nature yeah. shows that he comes from a... He has a superiority complex, and that was something that was in Germany at that time in the Nazi movement. And that 
seems to relate to his participation with them later in his life. Yeah. Whereas Tillich was the first non-Jewish academic yeah. to be persecuted by the Nazis because he opposed yeah. them and resisted them from the very start. But he did, Tillich did carry on uh, Heidegger's work relating to our misunderstanding of the use of supreme being interchangeably with yeah, God. Yeah, opposed to being a, a, a separate... The transcendent I, a source. A separate yeah. idol. Yeah. Um, it is a... It is idolatry, though. It, that's it, that's right. It, it is the what we would see in perspective as the point of where we're going towards. Like you know, if you look at your path, you can see the every either edge of the path on your periphery, and then you look out of the path, you see a single point. Mm. That point will continually re reveal itself and go further away from you. Ah, uh, yeah. So we'll call that point the supreme mm -hmm. being, if you will. But as we move towards it, it is constantly opening up and retreating away. Thus, mm -hmm. this relationship of opening and retreating and opening and retreating. Seeming and to retreat. It's just that it's constantly Opposed productive. to seeing that yeah. point as a separate thing that eventually yeah. you can get there and you can get it in your hand. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. that, that is the idol. You That's can right. hold an idol or you can hold an icon. The idol is something you worship. The icon reminds you of what you're worshiping. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I've been listening to some Orthodox people talking like... But to I, confuse I, our ideas with the actual I've nature of God I've had an issue with is, that, actually. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, well, why do you have, like, the saints lined up there and all this stuff? Like, isn't that, you know, idol worship? And then, you know, as, as I'm It's know, not supposed to be interchangeable It's, it's a reminder for what you're that. remembering. And, yes. like, if you're doing certain prayers, who or what you're praying to and what, you're, what you are doing. We know that the icon is not the an actual accurate representation yes, of what it stands for. Is the object. It's to point to that undefinable. But you don't worship the wood and mm -hmm. you don't worship the paint. Even though you'll hold a certain reverence for the process of carving the wood, the wood itself and the paint and the, the action to make it happen, you don't worship that. You were, that it's, reminds you what you worship. So it's that confusing. Relationship, it's right? confusing the finger pointing at the moon with the moon. With the moon, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, yeah. You know, a little yeah. bit of Bruce Lee up in there, right? <laughs> Y'all, you look at the finger, you'll miss all the heavenly glory. Uh, <laughs> all Bruce, heavenly glory. <laughs> Even kung fu moves uh, movies were talking about stuff like this. Come on, man. Bruce Lee been doing studied a lot of Jiddy Krishnamurti, man. He did his uh, homework. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's quite the philosopher. Interesting fellow. Well, I, I yeah, look back on uh, and there's an old episode of Actual Live podcast where I cover Bruce Lee and, and his interest in Jiddu Krishnamurti, and we actually listened to some Bruce Lee talking. Well, he was a man that was like, you know, if he was confronted with something that seemed to work that challenged what he was doing, he learned how to do it. You know, Chuck Norris kicked him in the face, and then he had Chuck Norris teach him what that was that he kicked him in the face with. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bruce so he, Lee so he came across, you know, right. the bodybuilders that were all big and was like, what is that? How do you do that? How do you make your muscles do that? How do you do Figured that, it man? out. How do you, you know, do like that? The stuntman, I forget what movie it was, but, you know, depicting Bruce Lee's thing and he got in a fight with the stuntman and whatever, and the stuntman was just putting wrestling moves on him. Huh. They actually became friends and he learned what he that wanted was to learn, yeah, yeah. and how to do that. Instead and this is how like, he no, began to develop Jeet Kune Do, so his own mixed yeah, martial arts yeah, style, yeah, yeah. which inspired and it a wasn't lot of mixed martial arts after, right? And it wasn't picking and choosing. It was Very cool. looking for what becomes apparent Yes, to yes. You. What you is know, useful in the moment. You know, you. The more that I can know of different styles, the more I have accessible for and any when, given moment. And when it comes to martial arts and kung fu, sometimes that's a kick to the face by a bearded man that's like, hey, <laughs> Chuck Norris. Yes. How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could Chuck, chuck Norris? Chuck was a badass, man. All right, fam. Yeah, so we're gonna get it. We're gonna jump on in here. 
It's episode 48 of John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. If you have been enjoying this series, make sure that you go over to John's page here on YouTube and give him some love. Check the description under this video for links to the entire Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series, as well as John's channel and a link to this actual episode that we're watching. And uh, if you are enjoying what we're doing here, make sure to smash that like and subscribe. Throw it on a comment with any thoughts or questions that you may have that helps the algorithm out more than anything. We'd love to hear from you guys and hear what you have to say or help uh, perhaps provide understanding on any questions. So uh, yeah, this is it. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time we were pursuing in depth uh, trying to understand Heidegger's work as a prophet in the Old Testament sense of the meaning crisis. Uh, we took uh, a look at um, this notion of uh, the thing beyond itself and realness as simultaneously the shining into our framing and the withdrawing beyond our framing in a deeply interfording, interpenetrating manner. We took a look at uh, uh, this deeper notion of truth, not truth as correctness, but truth as aletheia, that which grounds the agent arena relationship in attunement and allows us the, the potential to remember being by getting into an attunement with its simultaneous disclosure and withdrawal. But we can forget that, we can get into a profound kind of modal confusion, and this is the history of metaphysics as the emergence of nihilism. We can forget the being mode. We can get trapped into the having mode, in which the metaphysics is a, uh, you know, a propositional project of trying to just use truth as correctness. And we misunderstand being as a particular being. We try to capture the unlimitedness, right, aspect of being, but we only do it at the limit, which Heidegger is deeply critical of. And so we understand being in terms of a supreme being, a being at the limit and beyond the limit. This is ontotheology. We understand God as the supreme being. And this is deeply enmeshed for Heidegger with nihilism, because this ontotheology, this theological way, at least a, a version of theology from sort of classical traditional theism, right? This way of understanding being gets us into the deep forgetfulness and modal confusion that is the hallmark of nihilism. But of course, we could perhaps remember the being mode, and this is what Corbin, following Heidegger, talks about as Gnosis. We can understand what this Gnosis is, what, it, what does it look like? What it would, would it be like to remember from the being mode through Aletheia being? So I want to pick up on this idea of Gnosis as serious play in an, a, a particular piece of work by Heidegger. Heidegger discusses and this, Avins uh, discusses this in his book, and uh, Caputo also discusses this hit in his excellent book, uh, The Mystical Element in Heidegger's Thought. So both Avins and Caputo talk about this. Um, Heidegger's uh, commentary on the poetry of 
Angelus uh, Seleucius. Angelus Seleucius was a poet who was basically uh, trying to put into poetry, and uh, we can sort of uh, think of, uh, or at least foresee uh, some things Barfield's going to say. He's trying to put into poetry the work of Meister Eckhart, who was one of the great Neoplatonic mystics within the Rhineland mystics that I talked about uh, so long ago. Now, it's important, of course, for uh, Meister Eckhart and this discussion of Gnosis as the remembering through Aletheia of the being mode that alleviates um, the forgetfulness, alleviates nihilism, right, is that Eckhart, of course, is also experiencing this as a form of sacredness, as um, something that is um, appropriate to uh, a religious context. So, we also noted in conjunction with that that Tillich is going to be deeply influenced by uh, Heidegger's critique of ontotheology, but he's also going to situa situate it within, although he's going to radically revise what this means, a you know, traditional religious term, uh, which is idolatry. Now let's think about Heidegger's commentary on this poem. So what's the poem? Here's the poem. Well, it's in translation, so we unfortunately you lose some of the poetry. The rose is without why. It blooms because it blooms. It cares not for itself, asks not if it is seen. Right? So it's interesting that when Heidegger is doing this, he's actually talking about this word, phusis, the Greek word, which of course is the core of the word physics, which again, right, he's trying to uh, get back to a re-experience of the physical as important way of remembering the being mode. This is again why I think many people misunderstand, and I've argued this elsewhere and I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to it, the response to the meaning crisis is somehow a rejection of physicalism and the physical. Heidegger is instead trying to show you how it can more deeply be remembered. Now he's picking up on the Greek for this term. So again, he's doing some etymological work here. Phusis means, right, you know, you know, blossoming forth from itself, springing forth from itself. Right? Very much like the rose is being described. Right? And think about what this means. This is what Heidegger says. The blossoming of the rose is grounded in itself. Has its ground in itself. The blossoming is a pure emerging out of itself. Pure shining. Now, what's going on there? Now, of course, Heidegger will never talk just about this shining. Even though he doesn't explicitly mention it here, it's imp implied, and should, we should therefore remember it in the phrase, emerging out of itself, that the shining is simultaneously uh, withdrawing. We get a sense of the depth of the rose in its phusis, because as it shines, it shines in a way that's showing that it's shining out of itself, shining out of its depth, shining out of that in, into which it, 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 it withdraws as it presents itself to our phenomenological experience. 
So here Heidegger is, right, he's picking up on one of Eckhart's uh, maxims. This is what Eckhart said, live without why. Right? Or you could also translate it as live without a, a why. Now that sounds to some people like, what? That sounds like a meaningless existence. There's no why. There's no purpose. There's no grand unifying purpose. Right? But think about it a little bit more carefully, right? Is that quest for the grand culminating purpose, is, is, is that is that maybe perhaps coming from the having mode and not from the being mode? Eckhart is not proposing meaninglessness. He's actually proposing a non-teleological way of being. A non-teleological way of being. It's to move beyond. There's, right, there's no narrative to the rose. The rose is Right? It's not that right, it's sort of lacking, it's, it's, it's beyond, above and beyond the narrative. Right? So a way of thinking about this, and I, I promised to come back to this earlier in the series, and I'll come back to it now, right? right? And we talked about this in a couple places. We talked about it back with the Stoics, and we talked to, about when I was talking about perhaps we can't get back to uh, a, a narrative in the sense of a teleological aspect. Uh, to Fusus, to the physical universe. But maybe the universe as a whole is like the rose. Maybe it's blooming from itself, grounded in itself, blossoming, shining from itself, while always, always withdrawing. And think about how that, well, that actually comports with, you know, the physics of an ever-expanding universe coming out of the Big Bang, but grounded in the quantum. Like, is that so foreign a way of talking about the universe? That it's very much like the rose, and we get better at being connected to its fusus if we drop the axial age requirement that there be a teleological narrative to it all. Right? This horizontal narrative, it, it, look, it's important. The horizontal narrative gives us practice in something. It gives us important practice in something. Right? We're going to come back to this. You see, the, the thing about narrative is narrative gives you deep practice, cognitive existential practice in non-logical identity. We've talked about this and the relationship, right? It has to the symbol. So let's talk about it first of all in the symbol. Remember, here's a framing, and then you transframe, and then there's a non-logical identity between the world inside the frame and the world outside the frame, and a non-logical identity between you here and you there. Remember this, this non-logical identity between who you are inside this frame and who you are after right, a transframing. Remember that when we talk about aspiration, when we talk about aspiration, remember that. Now the thing about narrative is that narrative is a way of representing through time, symbolically, we can often rep now sometimes we're just talking about um, a, a kind of transformation through time, but one of the things that narrative does is through time it represents how you have a non-logical identity to yourself. Look, I was born in Hamilton in 1961. I'm not in Hamilton now. 
I'm not, you know, nine pounds. I'm 190 pounds. That kid that was born in Hamilton can't speak English. Couldn't walk, couldn't move around, certainly couldn't teach this. That kid is in so many ways different, non-identical from me. But in another sense, it's me. <coughs> and I'm him. Right? Narrative is a way of tracing out and training us in being able to work with non-logical identity, to work with this kind of fundamental transformation. But what we can do, what I think Eckhart is pointing to, is we can exact that ability for non-logical identity. We can exact that symbolic identity, and instead of thinking of it as unfolding narratively across time, remember how the Stoics criticized this. Stop pursuing fame and glory and wealth and power. Instead of the horizontal narrative, we can do the vertical ontology. We can do the vertical ontology in which we are connecting the depths of ourselves to the depths of being in a non-teleological being mode. This is, I think, is what Heidegger is pointing to and what Eckhart is pointing to. So, as I mentioned, the pure shining, let's, let's, let's put this on here. Here's the pure shining, the way the rose shines, phenomenon, experience, right? I think that's shining. I think we can talk about it as relevance realization, the salience landscaping into intelligibility. Salience landscaping into intelligibility. What, the, what about the pure withdrawal? Right? This is the independent inexhaustibleness of a combinatorially explosive reality. Right? Independent because it is inexhaustible. We cannot drink it dry. The Tao Te Chen, right? And the Tao is a way of understanding Fuzis the way Heidegger is talking about, right? Look at uh, the book uh, Heidegger and Asian Thought or uh, Heidegger's Secret Sources where it talks about the connection to Taoism. He might have been directly influenced by it, right? And the Tao Te Chen talks about, you know, how the Tao is a well that, that is never used up. It, 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 is inexhaust it is the inexhaustible mother, right? So the independent inexhaustibleness. Of a combinatorially explosive reality. The things, the thing and the things beyond themselves. Right. I think we can draw these two together as I've already argued. 
into this. I want to say this very carefully, right? We can see this, right? We can experience this from within the being mode in the following way. A, tra a, tra a trajectory, a trajectory of transframing that is always closing upon the relevant while always opening to the moreness. It's a trajectory of transframing that is always closing upon the relevant as it is simultaneously always opening to the moreness. When we recognize that, aletheia, remember it from within the being mode so that we can accentuate it and celebrate it. That's what I've argued sacredness is. And that seems to line up very well with what Eckhart is saying. Now, what, one of the things I have about Heidegger is he's reticent to talk about this in terms of sacredness. Uh, Tillich isn't. Heidegger is, and that's part of why I think he, he goes astray in certain ways. Yo, yo, what's up, guys? All right, so break time. Let's rehash everything that we just went through there. To understand God as a supreme being rather than unlimited beingness is the subject of our inquiry. What would it be to know being from the being mode itself? So this mystery of beingness that we conscious aware humans can experience from the being mode itself can we explore it from that and then we look at a poem by Seleucius highlighting how Tillich relates Heidegger's thoughts on idolatry and revises them in this context we're looking at this poem the rose is without why it blooms because it blooms it cares not for itself asks not if it is seen so what yeah what is what is that saying right there you know the 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 blooming of so the blooming of the rose is just for well it, let's break it down to a rose the rose it, it, it it's providing a function for itself purely of its function mm -hmm. now go a little further in the biology yes it's to be seen by the thing coming at it you know to pollinate and do all that stuff but beyond that it's not about the seeing it's not like oh there needs to be this rose that blooms so we can observe its beauty and no it's it's just from the ground it's up described doing by its, its doing the very function by its very nature yeah. and yeah it springs forth from itself the blossoming of the rose is grounded in itself it's a pure emerging out of itself a pure shining and so we look at this term phusis, which is or phoesis. Is P H U S I S core, okay. the, and and this is a core of the word physics. So phusis springing forth from itself. Heidegger uses this term to describe getting back to a sense of the physical nature of reality from the being mode to experience how reality shines forth from itself, how it blooms just like the rose. The shining, it's simultaneously also withdrawing, meaning that it is shining out of a depth that is so constantly creative. It's so constantly unfolding that it is ever unreachable. A pure definition is ever unreachable. So we are suggested now, and I believe this is where we get to Tillich, to live without a why or live so, without why. So before we get to that, so the mm -hmm. the 
the rose blossoming, the blossoming of the rose having the ground in itself. Mm -hmm. So it's the thing it comes from blossoming out. Uh, so it has to come out in itself. The blossoming of the rose has the characteristics and everything leading up to itself for itself to blossom. So it's not just the blossom of the rose, but mm -hmm. everything before the rose and to a certain extent, probably after the rose yes. and those who take the image of the rose on and move. Mm. It's a story of the so cosmos. That, that, well, that, that, that sets the rose within the participation of the natural life cycle of the world in a very physical sense. Mm -hmm. Right. Because mm -hmm. like with the, 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 I have it as phoesis. Sorry, uh, terms are bad, and I I can't see because I'm blind. So this term, this this the re-experiencing of the physical, this re remembrance within the physical self to remember the being mode, mm -hmm. using physicality to remember it. Yes. So thus, this rose that is growing out of the ground has the ground with it, and the blossoming of it isn't just the blossoming of the rose, but everything that comes before it, the the dirt the dust that it comes from and it's know. experiencing all that directly so in the and, moment and, and from the perspective of being this yeah, and, and through time mm -hmm. as well there is this time component that we we have to contend with because we are beings that well that all time. can be seen from the present moment that is sure. exactly seen from the present moment well, sure. and that's look, why you'll look, see look the look sage at the blossoming rose you can yes. see where it came from you can trace it down you yes. can see it when it's in a bud stage from and then you can see your thoughts about how people may interpret it down the road, appearing sure. in the moment as well. All of that is tied into the very present moment and can be seen from the being mode. And, and, and we know note how sages will oftentimes, like Ramana Maharshi, or uh, and it was Ramana actually, that would just sit there sometimes with a flower instead of speaking for hours and just looking at it. Mm. And basically inviting everyone else to look at it too. And that you can see eternity in a wildflower is... Yeah, the connotation there. So, as it shines, it shines as itself out of itself. Yes, or from itself. Yes, yeah, so out maybe of within itself. Yes, and so maybe then, and this makes sense to us, that the universe is like a rose blooming from itself. Yeah, it's ever expanding. Mm -hmm. There was some kind of big bang, as well that it is imminently emitting from. Mm-hmm eternally emitting from. So if we drop that axial age belief that there must be a teleological story or narrative, and narrative being a, a way of symbolically representing through time how we can have a non-logical identity with ourselves, if we can get to that transframing that we do naturally when we look back at ourselves like when we were a child, we weren't the same person. You know, we weren't the same weight. We weren't, we didn't look the same. We didn't sound the same. We didn't think the same way. Yet it was still us. And so our brains are able to transframe. So maybe we can exact this capacity. And instead of focusing on an unfolding horizontal narrative, we can do the vertical ontology instead, connecting the depths of ourselves with the depths of that ever unfolding reality that we are immersed in. Yeah. And so like the question is, is, you know, how do we get back to the narrative? And also, do we need it? Because does the rose need a narrative to rose to shine out as the rose is the universe like the rose? Um, but 
the thing with the narrative is it, it, it gives us a practical, um, so cognitive and existential um, standpoint in a non-logical entity. So the, the narrative helps us frame within a non-logical, um, like what he was talking about with like gaining insight from a story of somebody else. And obviously mm -hmm. you're not that person, but like, yes, you're not that person, but at the same time when you're reading it and you're going through the story, the narrative, you feel that person. So can we do it instead of from the attainment having mode on a, on a horizontal line trying to get from here to there, can we do it from yeah. here Yeah, and to it's there? not saying necessarily not to do it on horizontal line because, you know, that that does help creating a narrative story. Well, he does say can we but can, can exact. We transfer, can, yeah, can, can we exact this narrative? And instead of unfolding a horizontal yeah. narrative, he states, we can do the vertical. Move it up into understanding the world instead of just understanding the Through self. the being mode, yeah. not through the having mode. Yeah. And it is, of course, in a reciprocal relation. So as being inquires into the ultimate nature of reality, it's also inquiring back into itself. And it's getting that reciprocal realization move going. Yeah. Okay. And, so. and through a non, so the, the non-logical identity. Yes. Like through this, not because, you know, like that's our capacity to transframe. So that's what we're doing. Yeah, because we're identifying, you know, our, our first frame with the next frame and then the next frame and yeah. then, and the narrative. And so instead of the unfolding narrative, we're connecting the depths of ourselves to the depths of reality. Yeah. So we're moving, we're moving the, tr the, 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 Reframing from time the based horizontal, horizontal yeah. into a reality moment, based and maybe based, this moment of reality yes. uh, within within the moment yes. outside of time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. And so then he describes how we have from the being mode. And that's the objective. The, that's the objective view is, is taking that and moving it up. Yes. You know, opposed to yes. the narrative in time. So, so we can ex directly experience the rose just being a rose in that moment uh, yeah with all of that 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 entails yeah, yeah. from from outside if you will if you, you and know, see it and prior to our subjective interpretation of it in its limitless beauty so we can experience the pure shining forth and utilizing our relevance realization our salience landscaping of what is before us into intelligibility yeah. and then we can also from being recognized that pure ever ongoing withdrawing nature that independent inexhaustibleness that the Tao Te Ching describes the inexhaustible well we can see that com combinatorial explosive nature of reality that infinite yeah, ever growing up. ever opening ever unfolding ever blossoming nature of reality the horizon continuously receding yes. away with all the options upon the yes horizon. it's like as you approach the center of a black hole it is always it, the further you the closer you get the further you are away from the center because it's always producing so much or, energy it's he, pushing out so much as much as it's taking here's in. a more practical way to look at it so um, that's hard to say yeah. stand, well, stand, stand a any distance away from the wall take mm -hmm. a step towards the wall the next step take a step that's half as long the next step half next step half yes next yes, step, yes. Half. you'll never reach you'll the never wall, reach the wall but you'll always be taking steps and that's practical I, I i you know like well practical 
but it, like, it's it, at least it explains it in a way that we can comprehend. So and over time, long enough where if you stand a hundred feet from the wall and you take a step, and your next step is half, and next step is half, then you'll realize, oh, oh, you can actually see. Yeah, I'm never getting to that wall. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're gonna, <laughs> you can't even figure out how to do those infinitesimal movements when you really get yeah, down right, to just sub millimeter. It. Beyond level. scooch. What's the measurement yeah. beyond scooch? <laughs> Okay, um, so we can't exact. So that's pure that, withdrawal. That transframing yeah. capacity to explore the depths of, of being with the depths of reality. And remember that aletheia from the being mode, that sense of sacredness as well. I love that, that we're touching back on the sense of sacredness that we have lost. So, so the trajectory of transframing, closing on the relevant that it is... Oh, as it is opening into the moreness. Mm -hmm. The trajectory, so direction of the transframing, constantly opening the framing, going beyond the framing, closing in on the relevant at its opening into the moreness. So mm -hmm. there's this in and out, in and out, in and out thing going within that phrase that he gave us. And that's kind of what's happening yet again. He's been prepping us for this opponent processes, mm -hmm. you know, agent arena processes, mm -hmm. you know, going back and forth at the same time optimizing yeah how does human consciousness even work how do we find yeah. what is relevant to us at any moment because it does seem like in any given situation whatever is relevant well and that feeling feels taking up the bottle of water the bottle of water stands out i can grab it well so that that feeling of the direction you're going within your transframing that's finding what is relevant and then constantly opening out into the moreness when you have that feeling that feels sacred we base our practices off of that. Mm -hmm. We build our churches to give you that feeling. When you take entheogenic substances, you have this, this closing in, you know, you're mm. reframing while you're closing Reframing, in onto what's yeah. relevant, but then it's opening up into what's the moreness. There's like the reincorporation of, the of old frames into new frames. Yeah. And then, you know, as worshiping human beings, we can, we will worship these experiences or, Maybe not worship these experiences, but have these experiences as part of our practice of worshiping. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're not a worshiper, still that that wow. You can the, still get a the, sense the, of the awesomeness, the wonder, wonder that yes. pulls you, that opens you up, but also focuses you in and opens you up at the same time. It shines out from you and also retreats from you at the same time, creating this. So consciously exacting this capacity our brains have yeah. to realize what is relevant in any moment we can actually turn the being mode's awareness of itself on itself, inquire into this mystery of being from the mystery of being, and we can then be able to see our framings of reality, break old frames that are no longer useful, reincorporate what is useful and what else we, new thing, whatever new things we have learned, incorporate them into new frames and not be tied to those frames even, be able to be transframing constantly so that we can see from different points of view and perspectives, yeah. check in with the different views that we know are out there and try and come up with new views even on, and, and on also, to challenge our existing and accepting ideas. Embracing of embracing of the, the non-logical movement from one frame to the other. Like I'm not literally that person, but that is so me right now. You know, like the right. memes when you 
see somebody having a hard day or whatever. Yeah, being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes to see from their perspective. That's such a good exercise for us because it does widen our capacity for awareness overall. Even though it's not you, you Mm -hmm. can still read it and put yourself in the character's shoes. The more points of view you can consider, the more you can consider overall. Yeah. The more points in general you can consider overall. And that is infinitely helpful in our lives to be able to stretch out our perception of reality and, and widen our breadth of awareness. So, so that's uh, all I got on that. Yeah, that caught so. me up too. So let's go ahead and jump on back in. Jump on in. So we can think of realness as a tonos, this creative tension. It's something that Barfield brings out tremendously and clearly in his work. Right? We can think of realness as a as a tonos, as a creative polar tension between, you know, look, think of the word confirmation, coherence, right, and moreness. And remember, you need both. If the virtual reality just has the confirmation and the coherence, it falls flat. If it can't provoke a sense of opening and wonder, if it, there's no element of surprise, if, if it's all assimilation and no accommodation, if it's all, right, assimilation and no accommodation, remember, accommodation is experienced as awe and wonder. If it's all of that, if it's just assimilation, sorry, and not accommodation, if it's just the foreclosure and never also the opening, if it's just the homing and never the numinous, see these themes? Then it's not real. It's not experienced as real. And that being able to attune, and this is why the Tao is so, right, Taoism is such a powerful symbolism, right? You have, you have the yin, which is the confirming, right, drawing down, right, and the yang is the opening up, and both of those interpenetrate. Think of the classic Tao symbol, within the white is the black dot, within the black is the white dot, and they're sinuous because they're interpenetrating, interleaved together, and all of that is the disclosure of the inexhaustibleness of the Tao. I'm trying to make a convergence argument here, right? Taoism is all about the serious play, uh, the serious play with the serious play of being. And that's how Corbin describes it, right? When he's talking about Gnosis, he talks about the play of being. So does Avans when he's talking about Corbin. So I'd like to pass now explicitly, leaving Heidegger behind now and moving into Corbin. I've already noted how deeply Corbin was influenced by Heidegger, um, but he's also he's deeply influenced by Platonism, and that leads him into probably his deepest influence. So all of these things are important to Corbin: Heidegger, the Neoplatonic tradition, but most especially Neoplatonism within Persian Sufism. So Sufism is the mystical branch of Islam, and Corbin is particularly focused on Persian Sufism. And I think that's very, um, something important that we should pause to note. One of the gifts of Corbin's work is to help us remember, and thereby overcome our uh, ethnocentrism, how central 
and I use that term decidedly, how central Persian philosophy is to the history of philosophy in the world. Persia plays a pivotal role, and I don't mean it as a neglected middle, well, it is by us, but it shouldn't be a neglected middle. Persian, Persia plays a central role between, for example, between right, the, the Arab world, the European world, and the world of India and China, the Asiatic world. And what's really important about Persian Sufism, and I can't, the history of Persia is a fraught one, right? We sort of think of now, and this is because of you know, the history in this, since the 70s, we think of you know, Iran as sort of rabidly Muslim and something like that. And that's played up by uh, uh, propaganda. It is not to deny uh, that there is, a, 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 there is an Islamic fundamentalist totalitarian regime in control in Iran. But what it is, to, what I'm trying to do is challenge that as a monolithic representation of all of Persia and all of Persian culture. Instead, you have to remember that Persia was made Muslim via an Arab invasion that was nothing less than a genocide. And I know Persians. They remember this deeply to this day. So the attitude towards the Arab overlords is something that has become deeply woven into Persian culture. Why am I saying that? Because that means that the Persians were especially attracted to, at least for huge periods, Rumi and others, right? Right? They are deeply attracted to Sufism. They're attracted to a mystical interpretation of Islam precisely because they are trying to find a form of liberation from an oppressive Arab right, empire. So that means that it's important that it is Persian Sufism. And this is, deeply has an impact on Corbin. He's really taken up by this and how that Persian Sufism has a much more, I'm trying not to be dismissive here, has a much more flexible relationship uh, to Islam than you might think of when you think of Iran today in the world. Okay? And so, like reading the poetry of ancient, per of ancient Persia, at, all right, at, well, not even ancient Persia. What the, the 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 poetry from Persia since the Arab invasion and genocide, I think, is an important thing uh, to do to re-remember these aspects. Now, Corbin did all of that. He read this stuff deeply, profoundly, repeatedly, extensively. Now, there's ways in which he suffers. There's ways in which, as you know, a Frenchman, he will fundamentally misunderstand some of this literature. And I'm not going to say that he is a perfect interpreter, but I will say he is an insightful and important interpreter. So he draws all this in. He's drawing in the Heidegger and the Neoplatonism, and, and this is something you have to, and, and, and the Persian Sufis know this, the deep influence of Neoplatonism on Sufism. Right? So there's Neoplatonism, then there is a mystical form of Islam, 
right? Deeply influenced by Neoplatonism. And then Corbin is bringing that into understanding Heidegger. And then he's bringing all of that as a way of trying to explain this Gnosis and how this Gnosis can ultimately be salvic and redemptive in the face of the meaning crisis. Remember, he talked about Gnosis as transformative, salvic, participatory knowing, a deep at-one-ment, attunement at-one-ment. See how all these things are resonating with each other. Now, what does Corbin bring to this that we don't have in Heidegger? And here's a, where I think you can see the influence of Sufism and the rich world of Persian poetry upon him. And I think it, this is an important thing. Corbin sees there and argues for, reading Corbin is very different than reading, it's like Heidegger in the sense that um, it's, it's difficult, but, and because he's trying again to break out of the cognitive cultural grammar, but, it, but it's, it's very lyrical, it's very beautiful, but sometimes the, you, you pick up the beauty, and that's again the, Persian, the influence of the Persian poetry on him, you pick up the beauty without, and then you, you, you should pause and say, yeah, but did I really understand what he just said? So you have to read, you almost have to recite Corbin and repeat Corbin. Now, he uses that kind of argumentation to make a claim that the recovery of Gnosis is bound up with imagination in an important way. And you may think, oh no, John is just going to jump off into some decadent rom form of romanticism. No. Corbin is doing something very interesting about this. I recommend uh, the Lachman book uh, that I've recommended uh, for Corbin. Uh, see also Avon's book, uh, The New Gnosis, that I've just mentioned. See all of Chetham's work, um, The World Turned Inside Out, Imaginal Love. Uh, the, the third one was, uh, the, I think it was The Angelic Nature of Being. I can't remember the third title. Uh, anyways, we'll put all the panels up. Chetham's work on Corbin is, I, I, in fact, I, rec I recommend reading Avon's and reading Chetham before you read Corbin. So if you take a look, Corbin is doing something very important with this. He's not using this word in the way we typically use it. And in order to bring that out, he actually makes a distinction, a distinction that's going to be important, especially when we turn to talk about Jung. He makes a distinction between the imaginary and what he calls the imaginal. And it's the imaginal that is bound up with Gnosis. So imaginary, the imaginary is what we typically mean when we invoke the word imagination. We, we mean the purely subjective experience of generating inner mental imagery, which we know is not real, and that we can sort, it's sort of completely in our control, and we can play with it as uh, we wish. Okay. That is explicitly, clearly, definitively not what Corbin is talking about. Corbin is talking about the imaginal. And it, to try and convey the imaginal, I'm going to try and schematically represent it to you. Because if you don't get the imaginal, you don't get what Corbin is talking about. I also would say you ultimately do not get what Jung is talking about 
when he's talking about active imagination, because you'll just misunderstand imag active imagination as a purely imaginary experience as opposed to imaginal experience. And as I'll point out later, Corbin and Jung are deeply influential of each other. Um, Corbin is much more open um, about that relationship. Jung doesn't, Corbin talks about and invokes Jung often critically, but at least clearly and explicitly and with credit, way more often than I see Jung uh, talking about Corbin, which I think is um, a, a, a criticism I have of Jung. Okay, so let's try and represent this. So, first of all, think of two ways in which you sort of try and con, you know, uh, represent, come into cognitive contact with reality. One is, right, through abstract representations, abstract, the abstract intelligible world, the world that you get through your intellect, right? So you, 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 know, you grasp reality as a mathematical formula or something like that, or you, know, uh, you grasp reality as a purely formal entity. And then in contrast, there is, of course, the concrete. And of course, concrete and abstract are always relative terms. They're not absolute terms. The concrete, sensible world, right? At the bottom here. So one thing the imaginal does is it actually mediates between these two. Right? It bridges between them. It allows them to come together in meaningfully structured experience. Because in my phenomenological experience, of course, there's both an intelligible order but, right, that I can abstract intellectually. But there, that intelligible order also affects the way I come into sensual contact concretely with things. Okay? So the imaginal mediates between these. And one of uh, Corbin's arguments is, and you see, you see what he's doing here? He's arguing that the Cartesian cultural grammar, right, that, that basically, you know, replicates the axial two worlds, but within us, right? So, so right, the, you, you, here's the world of mind, right, the abstract intelligible world, pure mind, and the concrete sensible is the world of pure matter, right? This is the, the Cartesian division. And what, right, what Corbin is arguing is, yeah, but we've lost the imaginal that bridges between, right, those two worlds, between the mind and the material. Now, of course, Descartes split things in another way, and the imaginal mediates between those. And these, of course, they're not the same. That's why I represent them with different axes, but they are not independent. That's why I'm putting them together within the schema. The imaginal also bridges between the purely subjective and the purely objective. So to use a term I've been trying to develop with you, and we saw it all through Heidegger, um, the imaginal is deeply transjective in nature. So it mediates, and it's transjective. And then what you have to do is you have to see this whole thing sort of in motion, right, which I can't draw for you, right? Because the imaginal isn't a static relation. It's, it's also a constant transformative transframing. There's a movement 
to the imaginal. It is vibrant and vital in that way. There's a movement to it. Okay. So this is what Corbin means by the imaginal. It's a use of images, but not using them subjectively, using them transjectively, and we'll try to come back to that, right? In a way that mediates, bridges, right? Integrates the abstract intelligible world and the concrete sensible world together. But again, not just statically, but in this ongoing transjective, sorry, in this ongoing transformative transframing. So because of the centrality of the imaginal to Corbin, Corbin, and he explicitly understood himself as doing this and stated this, right? He was deeply opposed to fundamentalism. And here you can, of course, see the, the connection to the Persian history I was relating to. He's deeply opposed to fundamentalism and literalism. Why? Because fundamentalism and literalism, right, first of all, they reify this, they make it static, right, and they put things into, right, either the abstract intelligible world or the concrete sensible world or just into subjectivity or just into objectivity. They freeze this and then they fracture it. And thereby they completely lose the nexus of the imaginal. And for Corbin, right, if you lose the imaginal, you lose the capacity for gnosis. And then if you lose the capacity for gnosis, you lose the capacity for waking up within the being mode through Aletheia to being and the ground of being in sacredness. This is going to be something we're going to keep seeing. And again, something that Heidegger doesn't make explicit, but it's, it's explicated in Corbin, the deep ongoing criticism to fundamentalism and literalism. It's a deep component of Jung as well, right? Jung sees fundamentalism and, and literalism as the antithetical movement of thought and being in the world to everything he is trying to promote as a response to the meaning crisis. It is also deeply antagonistic to what Barfield is talking about when he's talking about poetic participation. Poetic participation, I like that. I just finished out this notebook. Got to start oh, a yeah? new one. Oh, yeah. Man. yeah, I'm almost at the end of this one, too. Ooh. All right. So, realness. Yes, realness as a tonos, as a creative tension. That's so cool. So, the creative tension. Yeah, well, it's that, it's that tension between. Between the pure shining forth and the pure constant withdrawal. And that's kind of what it seems like. So, if you could imagine, like, so just imagine in your head right now. The shining forth is this moving force going in you, mm -hmm. and then the withdrawing, moving out, and it creates this spring effect. But then flip it, the shining from you is now shining out, and then so you get that weird effect that in movies when you have like the hallway gets longer, but the character's face gets closer. Yes, what that is is you uh, pull back mm -hmm. the actual while camera zooming. while zooming in, so you're yes. doing two at the same time, yes. and it gives you this opening. While narrowing and narrowing effect at the same time, yeah, yes, oh, yeah. that is how the being mode can experience itself and get to know the mystery of being more. And it and, has and, to be both to be real. Yes, and this creative tension, like you know, think of looking at the sun; it's constantly revealing itself. Mm -hmm. 
to us it's shining forth but in that constant revealing you know you can take a picture and a picture every millisecond it's always going to be different on into infinity it's producing infinite newness so there's always that horizon of unintelligibility there's a point that you're not going to be able to get past it's always going to have more to say it's an infinitely withdrawing horizon even as it's shining forth and And that creative tension is what gives realness to reality and and to create a uh, image that i'm sure that we're all um, familiar with but um, following the setting sun to gain our directions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. though we're continuously walking towards it it is continuously going further from us. Yeah. and then when the sunset comes we are overloaded with this realness of the fact we can see the horizon we see the interaction we are in wonder mm-hmm. and wow mm-hmm. and uh, of the experience mm-hmm. never can we get closer to the sun well, at least on earth uh, but it's always there. It's always shining at us, and it's always retreating, and we're also retreating from it. Yes. And it always has it. infinitely more to say. We'll never be done seeing Yeah, because there will be a new day that you have yes. to follow the setting sun to keep going, finding your way. Right. Yeah, Yeah. yeah uh, there you go. Nice. You know, a little, little story to keep my head, head so in the action. So this, this tonos, this creative tension, we see it in, in words of how we measure reality, such as confirmation, you know? Oh, so it, there's that op- uh, pro or con. Yes, or, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that oppositional orientation, that relevance realization utilizes. We see this and this creative tension. So we see it in coherence. So all these things show up in realness. And if a if vir- if a virtual reality can't provoke wonder, there's no and there's no surprise. It's just an assimilation of things, but there's no confirmation for us to experience it as real. He gets into describing the yin-yang symbol now as he starts going into Taoism and, you know, defines the yin as a confining aspect of reality, the yang as an opening aspect of reality, but both are interweaved together. They interpenetrate each other. So the inexhaustibleness of reality is shown there in that symbol. And with that, you can think of uh, one as uh, giving a potential and one as seeing a potential. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or receiving a potential, rather, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the yin would be this receiving and yes. consolidating the potential, and the yang is this giving and opening up of a potential mm. at the same time, mm. right? Yes. And that's how batteries work. <laughs> so Taoism yeah. is like a serious play with the serious play of being, the nature of being itself, with the nature of reality. And Corbin, who is influenced by Neoplatism, looks at the Persian Sufism, which was also influenced by Neoplatonism, as helping us remember the being mode in a way that overcomes ethnocentrism. And Persian plays a very important role in history because it linked the Arabian world, the European world, and the Asiatic world through the uh, spice trade. And it was like a central hub. So there is so much, so many different cultures coming in there and influencing one another. And the Persian poets of the time uh, were especially attracted to Sufism, a mystical interpretation of Islam, because I think it sounds like, as Verbeke also interprets it, a way to liberate from that tyrannical yeah, empire. Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, a philosophy and a practice that came from the liberation of those who are conquered by mm-hmm. an oppressive regime. Yes. Yes, um, and I mean that in the truest sense. Poetry not is the way we use beautiful. it. In this, yeah. yeah, so and profound. Um, yes, yeah. So it's it, 
and also interestingly enough like taking in the 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 religion and philosophy of the conquering regime and then continuing it purifying it making or i don't want to say purifying because it's not made pure or anything like that but uh condensing it and making making the best out of what they had in rebellion to what was oppressing them, if they will. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. throwing the baby out with the bathwater, taking the baby out of it, raising it as their own, and trying to, um, I don't want to say use it, but you know, you, use it as a way to make meaning within their own meaning crisis at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, Corbin makes some pretty insightful interpretations and notices the Neoplatonic influence, brings that out to explain how Gnosis can be salvational, mm. or Gnosis, I'm sorry, can be salvational, redemptive. It can lead us to attunement, to atonement, and this is, again, the vertical path of self-transcendence, of self-realization, of the practice that it seems that all of the great spiritual traditions ultimately were trying to point us to. Certainly, Christ mm-hmm. was trying to get us to realize the truth within ourselves, the heaven that is already within yeah. And I guess Corbin's drawl also is uh, Persian Sufism is impacted by Neoplatonism. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't an alien thing. It was actually, you know, like he could look into it and see familiarity between his own understanding and path and, you know, Mm -hmm. and then be able to really look into it. And that's what he does. He sees and he argues for the recovery of Gnosis um, bound up with imagination in an important way, not imagination as in the imaginary fantasy kind of subjective mental inter or i'm sorry inner mental imagery that we can bring up in our own minds but the imaginal which is a wholly different use of imagination well it's the the, the it's it's what mediates between the abstract ideas of our minds and the concrete sensible world or well this is what this is what we use um like say an icon which is an image Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's an image we create to bridge this purely abstract uh conceptual um mind subjective world with a concrete great example sensible matter objective world where you can grab the thing you can Mm -hmm. look at it but Mm -hmm. that by having that thing also allows you to go into mm-hmm. the imagination, the subjective part. So having an objective, physical, concrete reality triggering or facilitating the abstract intellectual mind world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this ima- imaginal would be like, um, just the way I'm understanding it, is a, a, good, a good metaphor... Or uh, what's the other word um, for, uh, well, uh, you know, an, an icon or a, well, there's another word I'm not remembering right now, but basically a good icon, for lack of a better word, um, oh, damn, I'm trying to think of that word and it messed me up. But anyways, it's, it's, it's a mediatory force. You could have an object that does that, but then you can also have a way of thinking that also does that. And that's what imaginal, so imaginal thinking or imaginal experience is, is the bridging of the two portions of the world we experience, the mind and mm-hmm. the objective. Mm-hmm. It allows the two abstract and the concrete to come together yeah. 
in a way so that we can experience it meaningfully. And does it within motion, not static, mm -hmm. but moving. So, you know, the, the idea of an icon would be more static, but if you could put it into, say, a practice instead of poems or songs or psalms or things like that, and we can see this contact between both um, in a moving, non-static way. Because right. that's the it, Corbin's issues with fundamentalism and literalism is either or static. Yes. It's either subjective, mental, the mind world, or the objective, concrete world. Mm -hmm. We're going to make things happen. And we're going to make the better man. Very the literal. Mensch. We're yeah. going to make it happen. Yeah. You know, or we're going to be super philosophical and right. only living in the mind. And that's you know the problem with the fundamentalism or literalism. And mm -hmm. I'd say fundamentalism is within the mind, the subjective fundamentals. And literalism would be of the... Concrete. Oh, what yeah. we say, literally. Yes. Literally happened. Yeah, we're taking it literally. Yeah. So yeah, Corbin was looking at that Cartesian that dualistic cultural grammar that separates the world and how we've lost the imaginal sense that mediates between, and, and like you said, it mediates between the purely subjective and the objective because the imaginal is transjective in yeah. nature. It has a constant, and this is where you're talking about the movement, a constant transformative transframing potential to it, bridging the aspects of experience of reality together and Cor Corbin was deeply opposed to fundamentalism and literalism because they make static our perceptions of reality. We freeze them in place, and then we fracture yeah. and divide these different aspects of reality. We break them apart from one another, and we lose the nexus, that connection of, and mediation that the imaginal allows us to experience. So we lose Gnosis. We lose the capacity to awaken to the world through being itself and that is the whole point yeah we lose the sacred religious practice that is the, ex the religio the experience of self tr of Maybe, transcendence well we lose oneness the participation mm -hmm. in it as well yes you know because you don't participate we're no in longer involved static. in the serious play you, with this with the yeah. serious play of reality that's right yeah. mm. man okay so imaginal that's a new word i'm gonna have to yeah, and, and so Corbin, building off of Heidegger, Heidegger clearly was deeply influenced by Taoism, and, and you can see that. And if anybody out here has ever read the Tao Te Ching, it's always worthy a uh, revisitation probably at least once a year in one's life. Uh, there, are, there are certain works that are so infinitely unfolding that we can always gain new wisdom and from doesn't them. doesn't that have for every year of your life there is a... A, uh, is that the book that has for every year, every year of life there is some there is a poem to be read of that year of life that is to be contemplated? Is that the Dodge Chinger? Is that? I'm honestly not sure if that's how it works. I I was just thinking that in general that they it's have, useful like, to so come many, back to. Yeah, like, you know, and yeah. uh, and well, in certain traditions, like a you know a modern American tradition, traditional interpretation of other traditions. But yeah, on, on your 34th birthday, you read the 34th passage within it and you contemplate all Dig year it. on that Dig passage it. i like that yeah um so and it's kind of set up to where you are within your development as a cognizant human being mm. i right. think oh, i think man. that's the Tao Te Ching. I, i'm really bad with names so you're lucky i'm keeping up with any of this 
it all blurs together. If it isn't, that, that totally fits what I just said, so we'll take it. We'll take it and we'll run with it. All right, guys, let's jump back in. Either way, there's a book out there that has a passage for a... every year of your life, and you should read and complicate or contemplate You could each totally passage. use the Tao Te Ching in that way. I love yeah, that. Yeah, because yeah. I think it does have about 100 different little yeah. you know, yeah, poems in it. Yeah. Yeah. Give it Radio. a try. All right, fam, here we go. We're jumping back in. Let's... Uh, do we think? Do we need a little rewind on this one? I don't think we do. I think we're good. Yeah, to get go. a good stopping point. Yeah, here we go. All right, fam. Okay. So we're seeing again a potential way in which we can understand Heidegger's critique of onto theology because there is a tendency, right? And all of these thinkers keep pointing to it. If we get into the having mode and we get into ontotheology and we have the supreme being and we have our propositions about this ultimate being, right, that we can think that the way in which we should be is to have these propositions in a fundamentalist, literalist fashion. And we lose all of this. And what, we t and what, you, you, what you'll hear, right, is you'll hear the, the invocation of the symbolic as a dismissive term. Yes, oh, that, but yes, 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 you, you can read this symbolically, but, you know, it's just symbolic, meaning it has no real relevance or importance to you. Corbin is trying to argue exactly the opposite. If you have an attitude towards the symbolic as, that is dismissive, then, of course, you have lost the capacity for Gnosis, which means you have lost the capacity to remember the forget, like to overcome in aletheia the forgetfulness of being, to come out of the deepest kind of modal confusion. I see somebody as exemplifying this, although I don't think he's directly influenced by Corbin. I see Jonathan Pajot is trying to bring us back to this gnosis of the symbol and how we should not be dismissive of it. We should not try and slide it into either a conceptual world or a sensual world. We should not interpret it as merely subjective or, or, or reject it because we can't make it clearly objective for us. Look at all the jecting going on. Subject, reject. Okay? So, now to try and bring out the imaginal in a way that connects to Dasein, your being in the world, because remember, your self-knowledge and your participatory knowing of being are interpenetrating and knowing together. I have to bring out something of Corbin that if you read it and you haven't done all of this work, you, I guarantee, will misread it and misunderstand it. And it's a part that's difficult for me because it pushes my buttons in ways that I don't like, which is why I keep reading this stuff, right? Because I have a tremendous sense that it's pushing my buttons in a way that they need to be pushed so that I could perhaps wear free from them, at least to some degree. And, and here's where Corbin is different from Heidegger, where he really does pick up on the sense of sacredness that is going on within the imaginal. Okay, let's talk about how Corbin understands the symbol the imaginal understanding of the symbol as opposed to the imaginary understanding, the dismissive understanding of the symbol. Okay, so let's, what are these features? So the feature that was brought out when Chris and I had that excellent discussion, the translucency of a symbol. You look at it, but you look through it in both meanings of the word, by means of it 
and beyond it, like the way I'm looking through my glasses. The symbol is translucent. I can look at it, but I can also simultaneously look through it. And I can put those two into an important dialogue. Why do I want a dialogue between looking at it and looking through it? Why is it so important to have those in dialogue with each other? Because that is how the symbol can help you to capture the non-logical identity between your agent arena now in this frame and the agent arena in a more comprehensive, encompassing frame. So symbols are translucent. As I've already argued, they're transjective. Trying to make them either subjective or objective is aligned with a having mode dismissal of how the symbol is trying to challenge you to transcendence. If you, look, if you are not transcending in response to a symbol, you really haven't understood a symbol. If you just treat it as an allegory that you can replace with other literal terms, then you haven't really remembered through the symbol. There has been no aletheia. In your pursuit of the correctness of truth, you have forgotten the aletheia of the symbol. And this is why I'm so critical of people who are so dismissive of symbolism. The symbol is not only transjective, it's trajective. It's putting you on a trajectory of transformation, as I was just articulating. The symbol is transformative. Remember, the transformative of the inner man. It's, it's transformative of you at a fundamental level. And the, the symbol is ultimately trans-temporal, trans-spatial, because it has to do with, with this movement between worlds, which really isn't a narrative temporal-spatial movement. It's an ontological movement between you know, a smaller frame and a larger frame. I represent it with an arrow, but it isn't movement through space and time. It isn't a narrative change. It's an ontological shift. So I'm trying to pick all of these up. The translucency of the symbol, it's transjective, it's trajective, it's transformative, and it's transtemporal spatial. Aletheia, through the symbol. That's how you do Gnosis. Now let's give the troubling example that is central to Corbin. And I found it disturbing. Uh, in, in, in ways, and, and some of you will too, and I, I hope so. Uh, what I ask for right now is be patient, because I want to unpack this. I don't want to try and be dismissive, but I want to show you that Corbin is not using this notion in a way you standardly will. And it, I, I, like I say, I hesitate to do it. So the, the most important symbol of this for Corbin is what he calls the angel. And that's why Chatham puts it in the title of his book, and Avans puts it in the, title, the subtitle of his book on the new Gnosis. And as soon as I put that up there, many of you are now rolling your eyes, as I did, and I, there's a part of me that I can feel there's tension behind my eyes wanting to roll them. Right? Oh, no, angels. Oh, it was silly, superstitious idea. You know, cherubs and only New Age people that, you know, swing crystals and, you know, angels and all that stuff. And it's like, oh, no. What a disaster. 
And I, I, I deeply appreciate that, okay? I'm not being dismissive of that. I would say that that's an imaginary understanding of angels, one that Corbin himself repeatedly and deeply rejects. What's he talking about, and why is he using this term? Okay, he's using it because it's a term that is filled, um, that fills uh, some of the uh, literature of the Persian Sufism that he reads. I want to propose to you an alternative way of understanding this um, to what, right, our sort of cultural imaginary way of understanding this. Let me, let me go back in our history first to try and get a, right, a different way of leading into this notion and then take it into some current uh, cutting edge uh, uh, analytic philosophy, believe it or not, um, and show how that fits well and comports well with the cognitive science we have been doing throughout this response to uh, the four prophets of the meaning crisis. Okay, so this is, now I'm making use of the seminal work of Stang. Um, Stang wrote a book called The Divine Double, um, which is a follow-up to a book he wrote on pseudo-Dionysus, and he's written some brilliant articles on pseudo-Dionysus that brings all this out. Now, so the book is called The Divine Double, And he's pointing to a particular motif that was prevalent uh, in the Mediterranean world during, and right, remember we talked about the Hellenistic dominant side and thereafter, and you have the rise of Gnosticism and early Christianity. So during this period, and across many different groups, you see it within Gnosticism. He makes a clear case. Uh, and, and, you know, I, again, the, some people are going to know, no, but he makes a clear case for this motif showing up. Uh, within early Christianity. You can see it in Manichaeism. You can see it clearly in Neoplatonism and Plotinus. This notion of the divine double. I'm spending time on this because you, you won't understand Jung also if you don't understand this divine double. Okay? So what's the, what's the notion of the divine double? It becomes prevalent through the Mediterranean spirituality of the Hellenistic and post-Hellenistic period. And, and I didn't talk about it that much when I talked about the Gnostics and the Neoplatonists, because I wanted to talk about it here, because here is where I think it belongs. This was, this was the, the idea. And again, part of this is how this is so antithetical to our way of thinking, especially our, our decadent romantic way of thinking. So the decadent romantic way of thinking, you know, that um, sort of goes back to Rousseau, is you know, you're born with your true self, and you have to be true to your true self, and, and you have to express it, and that's what it is to be authentic. So, <laughs> this, the, the, and so, and this has become pervasive in our culture, right? In, in this uh, Mediterranean uh, spirituality, the motif is very different. It's this idea that here, I'm here and I have a self right now, or they might say a suke, right? A spirit or a soul. I have my self right now, but it is bound to the divine double. There's a double of me, right, that is archetypically uh, more important than me. And that what I am doing, my true self is actually this divine double. And my spiritual path is to reunite this self with that divine double. And to bring it, right, bring the two together. 
And that realization of their interdependence culminates in right, a kind of mystical union between them. Now, this is still all very fuzzy language. I'll grant you that. But first of all, notice how this is very interesting. Think, step aside from the mythos for a minute and think about the concept. So you see how this is Gnostic, Gnostic, right? Not in the sense of Gnosticism, but in, in, well, a little bit in the sense of Gnosticism because there's this transgressive. It's trying to break grammar. It's trying to break the grammar of thinking of your true self as something you have. Your identity is something you have, that it, you're born with it, it's in you, and what you have to do is express it authentically. And that grammar is being subverted and transgressed by the idea to, that your true self is beyond you, and you have to aspire to it. And only and you see there's a bit of the Socratic element there, right? That your true self is something you aspire to, rather than something you have. It is, the true self is something realized through the being mode of self-transcendence, not through the having mode of inner possession. And so the divine double, right, is pervasive, is a pervasive mythos. And what I'm first of all going to recommend is, and I think this is a very fair recommendation, you understand Corbin's use of the angel as a symbolic way of talking about the divine double. And you may say, okay, that's great, and I see why it challenges the grammar, but I don't care about this because, all right, I didn't believe in angels, and I don't believe in divine doubles, so telling me about angels in terms of divine doubles, what does that gain me? That gains me nothing. Well, I want you to be very, I want to be very careful here. I want to start a problem. I want to start you on a deep analysis of this, right? Let's put aside the mythos. Let's put aside the metaphysical claims. Right? And let's focus in on this very process of, as of aspiration towards a better self, towards a more angelic self. Right? Because it goes back to the Socratic project, but you can also see it in the depths of uh, right, our current. So, sorry, not, that's too broad. Sorry. You can see it, it, you know, this process of aspiration towards a greater, better, fuller self is, of course, all the way through Maslow. It's all the way through Jung. Right? This aspirational process is central to a lot of the mythos that we have about talking about right, how we are going to normatively improve not our situation, but ourself. So, is, is the divine double a crazy idea? Well, in one sense it is. If, again, if you just sort of literalize the mythos into some sort of axial two-world mythology, right, metaphysics, sure. But maybe it's not a crazy idea if we go back and try to ask this question. Instead of asking the question, look, and this is what I meant about real dialogue, philosophia, not philonokia. Instead of asking the question, should I believe that, First, ask yourself the question, why did so many different groups of people in that world believe it? What was going on there? What was it doing? And here is where I think I can immediately invoke the important work which I've discussed repeatedly throughout this entire 
the entire argument of this entire series, the important work of L.A. Paul and transformative experience. And that was bound up with the way we talk about Gnosis. Now, I alluded to somebody else's work, work that was influenced and from the same sort of, I, guess, I don't know what to call it, school as L.A. Paul's work. And this is the really important work of, right, of Agnes Collard. And her book is entitled Aspiration. And she's arguing for a neglected form of rationality that is best understood through aspiration. And rationality, what? Remember, I don't use rationality to mean management of the just, the logical management of argumentation. Rationality means any systematically reliable, internalized psychotechnology that reliably and systematically affords you overcoming self-deception and affords you cultivating enhanced connectedness, enhanced meaning in life. That's why the notion of rationality I've argued for is bound up with the right. It can culminate. It can point towards the cultivation of wisdom. So there's. let's talk about yourself before the transformation or before you launch into the aspirational process and the self afterwards, S1 and S2. Now, L.A. Paul tends to represent the, this as a much more sort of rapid transition. Uh, and I think there's important truth in that, the insight. Uh, whereas Collard is representing it much more, not incrementally, that's not the right word, but much more developmentally, having a much more extended developmental trajectory. And I, you can reconcile those, I think, quite readily by seeing qualitative development as a sequence of insightful transformations. So I don't think there's any deep inconsistency here. Okay, so what's the problem here? Well, as I've already pointed out, with any genuine quantitative, sorry, I used exactly the wrong word, I apologize. As I've pointed out, with any genuine qualitative development, quantitative development, you just get sort of more things, more beliefs, uh, more experiences. Qualitative development is why I am so different in kind from that kid that was born in Hamilton. It's a fundamental difference of competence, of what I can know and what I can do and what I can be, rather than just how much. Right? So I've already pointed out that you have an issue here of non-logical identity. Okay. So this is not an identity relation that, that can be captured by the fundamental right, identity theorem in logic, that A is uh, identical to A, meaning that they share all the same properties. We do not, John in Hamilton and John in Toronto, John in Hamilton then and John in Toronto now, we are not, we, we are not this. Right? We have a non-logical identity. And I've brought that out and how much Gnosis is about the difficulties trying to overcome the difficulties that this poses. Because of this non-logical identity, and I'm not going to repeat these arguments, go back and look at them when I talk about Gnosis. We cannot reason our way through this. We cannot infer our way through this. And Collard is, de de is, Collard is de deeply in agreement with this aspect. You cannot deliberate your way through it. You cannot decide your way through it. Right. So, what is the nature of the relation, right? 
Well, Hallard thinks it's aspirational. It involves what she calls aspiration. But she's at pains to point something out that L.A. Paul doesn't, which I think is very um, important. Right? You can't, if you don't include this process as part of what you mean by this term, you're going to get into a deeply self-refuting position. Because my relationship to rationality and my relationship to wisdom are aspirational. I am aspiring to become rational precisely because I am not currently that rational. And if the aspiration to rationality is not part of rationality, you're getting into a weird kind of self-refutation. The aspiration of rationality is constitutive of the ongoing process of being rational, and therefore it must be included in your notion of rationality. And notice how we're getting back towards the platonic idea of the deep interpenetration of love and reason. Took a long time, eh? Took a long time to circle round back to that. Right? So of course, this is also the case for wisdom. It's also, look, think about this this way. One of the things I need to do to become rational is to become more educated. And, but Keller off argues explicitly, right, a genuine education, well, there's different meanings to that word now. One is just the accumulation of facts and skills and stuff like that. But for many, and this, is w this was supposed to be, maybe it still is, the defining feature of a liberal education. Liberal, liberal, to liberate you. Gnosis, to save you, to liberate you from existential entrapment. A liberal education is designed to make you into a better self a better person, which is why it seems so useless to people who want to manipulate and control you. Think about that. When you side with, oh, liberal education, ha <laughs> silly, bottom line, your side, I think you're getting on the wrong side. Because you're lo we're losing something there. Right? So a liberal education, and this is what it classically meant when you go back into the Middle Ages, is gnosis. It's, it's aspirational, it's, it's, and you don't know what it's going to be like. Remember all that stuff about L.A. Paul. So let me just leave you with the example from Kellard, and then we'll come back and talk about this in the next episode and expand this whole. What, is that, what, am, I trying, what am I leading you towards? I'm leading you towards that this is the relationship between the existing self and the divine double. Or another way, perhaps, of putting it, the divine double is a symbol, in Corbin's sense, that allows you to move from yourself now to yourself then, to the better self. One of the examples that Callard gives in Aspiration is, and think about how this fits in with a liberal arts education, somebody who wants to come to appreciate music. And notice I'm play, and that, how that word appreciation means both understanding and a gratitude. It has an, a, a connotive, right, emotional aspect, and has a denotive conceptual aspect. I will, cognitive aspect, I should say. I will understand the music. So I want to, let's say, I don't currently get classical music, but I have an inkling 
And it's really important, uh, I think, that, uh, that you know, Charles Williams and Barfield and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis called themselves the Inklings. I have an inkling that there, there's, a, there's a self and a world there. Remember we talked about right, the person trapped in this world, but a sense that there might be a better self and a better world over there? I have an inkling that right, I should like classical music. But I don't currently like classical music. I have to come to be the kind of being that right, appreciates classical music. How do I do that? How do I bridge from me now not appreciating, not getting, not liking, not enjoying classical music, to somebody who can sincerely say, I love classical music. I really get it now. How can I, we use this phrase and it, it's, notice how it's so rich and resonant with, you know, contact epistemology, right? Right? That, that now I have a taste for music. I have an acquired taste for it. Let's get behind the metaphor. How is it Right? And notice when you taste something, you're putting it into you. You're putting it into your being. It's not only contact, right? It's it's even consumption, not in the having mode sense, but taking it deeply in, right? What is it to move that way? What I'm trying to show you is that Corbin's talk about the angel is a way of him invoking and bringing into activity all of this stuff about symbolism that we're talking about and integrate it with this process of aspirational rationality that is so central to self-transcendence and so central to us becoming more rational and more wise. Thank you very much for your time and attention. are turning from grumpy into more like mm, yes i see mm, yes yeah, cheering up <laughs> well i won't i won't call it cheer maybe maybe the realization of aspiration but not cheer hey hey i'm not cheery damn it revelations of aspiration oh that'd be that'd be a good album or song name revelation revelations of aspiration revelations of aspiration i'm writing it down you know, it's kind of like what the awards that... It's uh, a good title for a book. It's a good chapter title. It's a lot of things. Well, you know, the awards that... Um, uh, well, I guess, you know, the Hollywood elite give each other mm -hmm. now. That just seems so stupid. We're originally, you know, revealing, you know, um, showing respect to somebody um, actualizing their aspirations mm. to be, you know, a great actor or... A great musician or whatever. Yes. Now it's just you know whatever, but you know still. Yeah, no, I, I get you though on that celebratory aspect. So where we left off, Vivek was noting how there is a tendency for us to drop in to the having mode when we are relating with this idea of an ultimate being, going on about propositions about an ultimate being. We go into a fundamentalist literalistic propositional mode rather than a being mode communion kind of relationship with the ultimate nature of reality with this thing that we call God thinking of it as a separate ultimate being that 
we have the right version of is what causes us to go fundamentalist, literalistic, propositional, rather than aspirational, as the being mode allows us. We should not be dismissive of symbolism and interpret symbols merely as something that can be taken subjectively or objectively. We have to recognize the transjective power of symbols to bring out the imaginal in a way that allows us a sense of sacredness. Because symbols allows, allow us... At once, they're translucent to us and transjective in that we can look at a symbol, but we can also look through a symbol because a symbol is loaded with pointers towards meaningfulness, right? Symbols challenge us to transcendence. It helps us put that looking at and looking through both of those processes into a dialogue. So a symbol is not just an allegory or a metaphor. A symbol points to an aletheia. And one that we have, uh, we have forgotten. A truth we have forgotten, yeah. that's right. Because the symbol is being transjective. It's also a tread, it's on a trajectory, but it's a transspatial trajectory, like a movement between worlds of ontologies of smaller frames to larger frames. So it's an ontological shift, not a movement through time. It's trans-temporal. Yeah, like what we're talking about, it's not this, you know, horizontal movement through time, but yes, the vertical. It's the vertical, the that's time. right. Yeah. So so the aletheia through the symbol is That's gnosis, how we do gnosis, yeah. Or gnosis. Gnosis, gnosis. Um, tomato, tomato. And then Corbin spoke on angels in the, oh no, you know, which... The oh no of angels is the imaginary understanding, not necessarily the imaginal, the looking through. What does angel mean mm -hmm. as an analogy mm -hmm. as opposed to, oh, angels touched by an angel. What does it mean as a symbol and an analogy in, in a dialogue together? So beyond our imaginary fantastical representations of the angel alone as uh, some kind of you know metaphor for, for some new age kind of vision, so we look at it, the relationship between that symbol and the concept of a divine double. Yeah, and that was Stang? Stang, Stang wrote Stang. on the divine um, double, so that's right. So the imaginal angel that we we're speaking of, not the imagination of an angel, two wings and whatever, but you know the, the thing that we look through to get the idea of what an, the word angel is trying to show mm -hmm. us is mm -hmm. the divine double. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, yes. It's and it's it's bound up with this idea of the divine double. It, okay, so basically I have a self perception. It's it, in the spiritual idea that we're playing with here. Ah. Is that go ahead if you, if you I, got I, yeah, it, yeah, I, th I think you got it. So piecing this together. This here. this divine double is um so antithetical to the decadent decaying romantic idea of the true self the way we mm -hmm. think of it in the right oh you just you know you know if you can just do all these things yeah, if i can have these things then i can i'd be my know. true self if i had the things that serve me right i'm my true self mm -hmm. but the myself is bound to the divine double so this divine double is what you could be in your ultimate uh i don't want to say perfection but perfection you'll never reach it but ultimately what is that true self that you could reach not like you know 
If right. I just have this or have this or have this, it's like, what am I doing? So it's like there's an ultimate realized version of oneself at the yeah. end of time that is your true self. And the goal... And, it, and well, this... it's not held down by the the sticky relationship or the relationships that stick to self, but what self could truly be. That's right. Uh, the, and the, the ultimate... Um, expression of self that you may yes. never you may never reach right that's right but, that's right the ultimate expression of of your potential self so it's almost like a pulling and it, force so that's there's like pulling yeah, like kind of a guardian it. angel at the end of time almost kind of vision of self so the, the persian mystics had this view that their true self is the divine double and my goal in life is to cultivate a union a mystical union with my divine double to become this yeah. rather than the true self is something that we have now the true self is beyond and we must aspire or, to or, it or rather something. than something that we have yeah yeah opposed to something that we have to un uncover and unbury mm -hmm. with the crap that we stick on ourselves it, no it's something that we have to build towards yes we we have to reunite with it's a process of aspiration know. rather than yeah. accumulation or acquisition yeah. it's defined and access through self-transcendence being mode versus the having mode so putting aside the mythos and the metaphysical ideas Let's look at the symbol of the angel as aspirational towards a truer self. Mm. Yeah, so divine, the divine double being the divine mythos of selfness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, angel, the symbolic divine double. So yeah, so it's so not what, about what how we might. This, what does this give me? This this divine double. It's, right. Well, it's it's not about improving our situations and what it gives us. It's about improving ourselves, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's the process in which we improve ourselves more than just the imp improvement of the self. Yes. So now we're looking at, so why did so many people in this time in Persia believe and practice this? And L.A. Paul, who wrote the book Transformative Experience, and then Agnes Callard come into play now. Agnes Callard, she well, writes so on aspiration. So before we go to that, though, the question is, is why did, in, in, so instead mm -hmm. of asking, why am I, drawn towards this or trying to understand it. why so why did so many believe it what you know instead of why do i believe it um mm. so why well i i would say probably why is because this is integrate integration of the subjective and the objective yet again yes um it was a way it was a way of playing through the imaginal to unite the abstract and the concrete yeah. In, in a play, a serious kind of play. In a way that, 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 so, I guess because it's, you know, this, this, uh, this aspiration to a better self is central to the mythos of our norm, the normative improvement of mm -hmm. self. Mm -hmm. And yet again, so normative is a, 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 a Z-axis function in the way we've been following this. So yes. yet again, moving up. Not through time, but mm, ontologically, yeah. yes. Um, yeah. So aspiration—it's—it's it's like a neglected form of rationality. Yeah. She she's really big about this. Any system and rationality is really any systematic, reliable psychotechnology that allows us to overcome self-deception and enhance meaning in life. So it's not just like argumentative rationality. It, it rationality and aspirationally can afford the cultivation of wisdom. Yeah, so there's the before the aspiration and asp after the aspiration, and Verveke calls this S1 and S2. So mm -hmm. S1 is before aspiration and is a qualitative 
Yeah, yeah so well, okay. we can say uh, these qualities that are within it that yeah. I can identify. State of self one, state of self two, we can call yeah. them, you know. And so after aspiration is the difference um me, okay, so oh, it cannot be how much okay, so the the difference is me is not of like a how much and not but in non logical way is is um hmm, damn. Uh, yeah, well, we do know that. I need to rewrite my notes. We do know that if aspiration, the aspiration of rationality is not a part of rationality, rationality itself becomes self inferential. Rationality needs aspiration in order to uh, be a healthy rationality. Yeah. It must aspire to go beyond itself. It must be willing to self correct and self challenge, break frame, and be, be transjective. It must be willing to transcend its ideas so that makes sense aspiration is necessary for rationality so we're really trying to bring back love and reason into rationality because we must have a love of truth rather than a mere want for acquisition of knowledge for us to be able to cultivate wisdom and overcome self-deception you must love the truth well, more than our ideas, more as, than our certainty. As for, well, more I, than being right. Yeah, that's where, like, there at the end, uh, Vicky was talking about, it's like, you know, I don't have appreciation for class, classical music, but something is pulled, pulling me towards having a taste for it. I have an inkling that there's something yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So aspiration is liberation. Yes. Um, aspiration allows us to, to liberate ourselves from which, our old... He's, ideas he's, so we can grow yeah yes. he said that aspiration is meaningless to um manipulators mm. that makes sense because when you want to manipulate somebody like and really get them to do what you want you break down their own personal aspirations mm. and you get rid of them and then you replace them with, with what you want to do yeah. right with what you want them to have um, that's right so liberation education and and these are sticky touchy words because the word liberation and education have been perverted to such a degree so much. that it's barely recognizable at this point. And the institution of liberal education yeah, itself has been, has been so yeah, corrupted yeah, at right? this point. But what Liberalism is, means is, something wholly different than what, than what classical liberal yeah, so, you know, means. Yes. Liberal education should be developing a deep sense of gnosis mm -hmm. within people and not the knowing of a lived experience, but the true participatory knowing of going through the process and the practice in order to understand, gain revelation, and then underlying all that, the aspiration to do it so. It must inspire us to aspire yeah. beyond and we have ourselves. To be, yeah, inspire us to aspire to continue <laughs> yeah. going. Yeah. Because, you know, dude, it's hard. Waking up is hard. And to That's challenge your own coffee. ideas is hard, you know? Yeah, because man. we're attached to our ideas. We form egos, like self-images well, around we're our we're ideas. We're attached as much as they are attached to us. Yeah, so, yeah we're know. identifying as our ideas. And we think that when somebody attacks our ideas, they're, atta they're attacking us. So it's really hard for us to change our minds about it. That's why certainty is so dangerous. And we shouldn't mm -hmm. be so identified with our ideas, our beliefs. So yeah, we're so much deeper than that. To, to break this um, S1 and S2 and aspiration down is S1 mm -hmm. is the existing self where you're at right now. Yes. S2 is the divine double, the better self. And aspiration yes. is the thing that bridges the existing pitiful, lazy self now with the inkling that gets us into trying to realize the better self, even if better self is something like perfection and we can't actually get mm -hmm. to 
the fullness of it. Yes, yeah. But we still aspire towards it. Sure, yeah. And that's why, you know, the Christ character is so so helpful for people. Aspiring towards this ultimate perfected yeah. being that you'll never, ever reach gives you a trajectory that we can all follow and constantly improve by. Yeah. And will never be done. There's no cap to enlightenment, as they say. And you know what, kids? Which that's I love. no it. cap. <laughs> it's no cap. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so in, uh, aspiration being an inkling, not a getting. You don't get mm -hmm. classical music before you get classical music. That's right. You have an inkling that you should be getting classical music. You have a hint. And, and that brings us a into... A sense of meaningfulness or something yeah. in that direction. Yeah, and that's that, drawing you. And that brings us into aspirational rationality. So we're merging this irrational, mm -hmm. transframing capacity that capacity we have capacity mm -hmm. into an aspiration aspiration aspirational trajectory. rationality yes. a very rational aspiration there there's a reason for it yes. you may not know yet you may not know the reason why you feel like you need to get classical music but once you get it you get it yes right? yes something like that i think that's yes. that's what I'm i getting think that's what he's it. i think that's what he's getting at that's right very very cool oh man dude like this what, stuff will really stretch you if you really I'm gonna go I'm take gonna it go on, back through you know? like this next year I'm gonna go back through this and do an in-depth right I, I know because I know there's so much these notes and there's so these much are, more that can be glued together in the neural networks that we've been mapping out hey we've got uh, three Beautiful. more after this we've done actually two more right no, this I is episode 48 and then we got 49 and 50 no but it goes to 51 because the first one's introduction so it's actually a 51 part series in the um, is there a 51 yeah no yeah i do see solving the meaning crisis lecture series here no yeah so i think Ooh, what's going on is that's coming. um either way we're a few away but i think it's 51 because here's, the first one was just introduction i've been the following the, the playlist right okay um, here's so. a video on uh, that i was telling you about earlier with the orthodox ministers uh, on emergence and emanation john verveke that might be fun to cover yeah, interestingly enough, like John Verveke being a non-theist, not necessarily an atheist, um, what he's doing is very similar to what I'm observing that the Orthodox Church, what they do. Yeah, so he might be open to the idea of God. He just doesn't believe in any one God. Well, you know, at this, you know, he, he's a scientist, so yeah. I, I don't blame him. So he's not an atheist. He's but nor does he ever deny either. So that's you know, right. He's he not, is very careful. There. He's not doing what the um, more conservative. But he doesn't want to get into a fundamentalist, literalistic, people. propositional well, argument here. He's he's trying to do something whole different. Never shaking his fist at God. That's because right. Because there's no point in what he's doing. To or the shake sacred, his fist a sense of the sacred. God. That's right. He sees yeah. the value in a sense of well, the sacred. Well, he's he's looking at and the him. aspirational goal of self transcendence. Yeah, he's looking at what what are we trying to do mm -hmm. with religion. With yeah. religio, yeah. Which, you know, like, I can respect, like, that's kind of what scientists need to do is, like, you know. Are we just trying to argue over our ideas or, and proclaim our beliefs, or yeah. are we trying to aspire to something yeah. within ourselves, yeah. a higher relationship with reality, with the source of this reality, and become more loving and responsible and able beings? Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Are we trying to follow a way of being, or are we just trying to say, this is what I believe, and that's good enough? Well, because that seems to kind of be the mode that we really have gotten stuck in. 
No, most it's from what I've realized, most of the times when people claim this is what make the claim that this is what I believe, they don't even know what they believe and it's a lazy way of just passing the buck of responsibility off to the lump of those who say I believe such so and such. And so, yeah. You know, because um, it seems right to us, we want to be seen as on the side of rights, or we, we don't want to be well, like, kicked out of our group. Uh, I think you I know. mentioned this when we were heading up to band practice uh, earlier in the week, but sloth mm-hmm. and how dangerous sloth is is because it's like, well, I believe it, so I don't have to look any further. Yeah. You know, I'm lazy. I, I, it's the laziness. I don't. I don't have to look any further. I, I don't mm. need to do that. I mm. got it. Mm. That's I just, right. I believe yeah. it. I, I yeah. can make the proclamation, and that's fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's that's actually uh, finally an IKEA form of an argument too. You well, know, that's a victory kind yeah. of argument without even using any kind of. Well, it's the victory by turning over the table. Rationality, and just saying, it's just uh, whatever you know, throwing the monopoly. Yeah, I'm already done. I've already looked at that. That's, yeah, whatever. You I've know. already figured that out, and I, I already understand to, that. I don't have to play whatever chess you with say you, is. I'm better yeah, than you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't even need to consider your ideas. Yeah, that's lost. that's a way of ending an argument. Well, I don't have even... to even consider my ideas because mm. I've made the proclamation. Mm. That is sloth. Mm. That's why just pro, uh, it's a mental sloth. Mental that's laziness. why we need uh, yeah. the participatory subjective aspect of our experience. Is is so it's not just a, oh I'm proclaiming this. It's like no I'm not proclaiming it and I'm done. It's every day I'm going through this. I'm experiencing this. I'm I'm continuing through and it still seems like it's right to me. And then when you work with somebody else that has a counter idea, ultimately you should be refining what is mm-hmm. right to me as you're doing it. That takes worse uh, work. That's the opposite of mm-hmm. sloth. Yes, a, w- a willingness to subject yeah. your own beliefs to interpretation yeah. and reevaluation, and take the energy to hold down wrath, or to, to consider, yeah, and, and keep it. Yeah, to know, drop your conditionality, yeah, become yeah, more yeah. unconditional, yeah. to be able to consider someone else's point of view. The seven deadly sins is really deep, and it's not just a religious Christian thing. Like if you really look into them, you see how much, how much time and effort people have took into identifying these tendencies of human nature that keep us from being the optimized being that we should be mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it's 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 really interesting you know like humans we've taken a long time to try to figure this out and we're not perfect no but we've really taken a long time and it's worth rejecting sloth we've done some good work yeah. to put the work in and rejecting the envy of other people oh, mm-hmm. i just want what they the jealousy have. well if you want that put your nose down mm-hmm. and work through it mm-hmm. you know i think sloth, like personally i think sloth is the deadliest of the sins because it keeps you from keeping wrath in check mm. lust in check mm. envy in check you know all the rest in check yes um so you need an aspirational loving motivation is yeah, a good con- love and motivation it, to it is a good to transcend these things to yeah have you need that to yeah. to, to yeah. develop that willpower to even sure. be able to overcome yeah. it yeah. yeah and you could say that's almost like when somebody says oh, i feel spoken to by some outside force that made me get my life together that's aspiration mm. whether it's angel mm-hmm. divine double something as uh, uh, like just um your partners in your head whatever you want to call it that you know so when we say angel we're talking about the divine double and when we're talking about the divine double we're talking about your the greatest an- version of yourself yes. and the aspiration that grabs you and tries to your quote unquote you angelic that. potential yeah, yes yeah, yeah it's it's, it's yeah. interesting yeah i'll have to think on that because like i i i, I haven't seen like these past 10 episodes i haven't seen any of so it's kind of going off the cup cuff so now like that we've gone through this would be nice to listen to again and start mm. to 
yeah. pick out these things and then think of, you know, okay, when they say, you know, like guardian angel or when the, the, the reference to angel, like keeping this idea of the divine double for something, not just for myself, but the other angels that aren't the better portions of myself. What is that? Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. does that mean? What does that How does that connect yeah. down to here? And look at that from the imaginal perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah opposed to the imaginary. To, to help yeah. the symbol and this, what the symbol points to be in di dialogue. In, yeah, in yeah. that deeper dialogue. Yeah, and the and, and in a way that um, is in the spirit of the logos. Yes, and and, and it's at, exactly that is in a communion with the logos. So we are questing into this question rather than trying to acquire an answer. We are questing into an aspirational process. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy, it's been fun. It's been good. Looking forward to. Uh, this is a good one. Uh, next seasons stuff. Even though we're not quite finished with the seasons, but next season should be really good. Because now we can apply oh, yeah. what we've learned here and go out and look at other smart, wise guys and what they have to say. And That's right. Start, yeah, we're in on the. We conversation can start looking. Now. We can start digging into some of the more controversial subject matter, things that are going on in the world right now, through this lens. It's going to be very, very helpful. Be a lot better than just me like grinding my teeth while I'm drinking my coffee in the morning and reading. Well, now we have a, a strong, <laughs> healthy firewall to yeah. BS and self-deception that we've begun building within ourselves. Um, and the practice of going through this entire series has required a lot of discipline, a lot of effort, a lot of uh, inquiry and willingness to challenge our own conceptions of ideas. It's it's actually felt really healthy, this entire process. I, I love how Verbeke has approached the challenge of how we may awaken from the meaning crisis. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, we're lucky to be in the process of awakening. Right, yes. Out of this. Yes. And into this meaning crisis, because first you must wait, awaken into, and then we we'll work together to awaken out of. Amen. May we never consider ourselves done and be so certain as to think ourselves woke on any subject. May we always be awakening. Awakening, never awoke. Right. Awake, yeah, never done. Constantly. There's a, infinite room for us to grow out there so we can ever awaken. And I, I love that idea. Well, I love that there is no end to the potential that we may reach. You know, there is no cap to our how ultimate enlightenment. How boring just, just and infinite room to grow. How boring and hellish would life be if there was a limit? particularly a mm. limit that we could see right and they're like oh they were done we'll, we'll wear robes and sit on thrones right sounds like hell to me no Th the thrones life that you're showing me look uncomfortable yeah. in those robes are they cotton or are they polyester yeah <laughs> right oh boy yeah this world's never been static it never will be it's in the constant state of flux and constant change and, that, and you know what i am so thankful may we always aspire to that i exist in a universe that's e even though it's a churn sometimes mm -hmm. really continues to go and make something of itself and i can yes. be a part of that making something of itself and intrinsically you know? yes a o part outside of, it, of yes. god or anything else the universe is something that is making something of itself and you get to play a part of it so whether you're atheistic non-theistic any theistic you want Realize that you're playing a part of something grander than it yourself. The making greatest itself. The greatest story <laughs> ever written. The greatest is, story ever. That's being. We're written, all co-writers you know? and co-creators, yeah. and the greatest play that's ever been performed. 
And even if you, you know, you don't get out, you don't got too many friends and you're hermit, you're still, you're still participating. There's, there's no, no way out of that. No. So, so I, I feel blessed for it. You know, some, you know, most of the time. We're all receiving from and I contributing feel, something to reality. Yep. And if, if you're feeling bogged down by it, uh, you know, when the moments that make you feel it and really feel like it's worthwhile, lean into them. That's right. When you water a plant or even just appreciate a plant, and I say plant because maybe there's no people around, you are in direct contact with the great mystery. Yeah. And we may have reverence and a great sense of wonder for that great mystery that we are dwelling within. And for the mystery of beingness that we experience life through, we can turn that being, that sense of being, in upon itself to investigate itself to inquire with wonder a playful imaginative sort of wonder into itself yeah that's it and then we're in participatory relation with we are like the rose we are the rose we, we are the, the dirt rose. and we yeah. are the bloom and we are the person that is appreciating the bloom that then becomes the dirt again because that person probably picked the bloom and now it's dying or we it's can time. see from that again yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah we can be from there again constantly going and going never tiring we may tire but the process doesn't mm -mm. that's why there's so many iterations of us to continue the process emergence is ever ongoing yeah, yeah. never tires never ends yeah. all right fam this has been beautiful thank you all so much for joining us make sure that you go over to verveki's channel and hit the like and subscribe and if you are enjoying what we're doing here Definitely make sure you smash that like and subscribe here as well. Throw it on your comments. Help feed that algorithm. And share with your friends and family who you think may be interested as well. Stay tuned for what comes after the Awakening series. We've only got two or three more episodes to go here. I was just looking to see if there actually is a 51. I, I see 50. Visual review that someone else did. Hey, digital It, it might cool. be 50, but I, I'm using the... Um whatever playlist that's on there that includes that's includes right intro, yeah so we, we, we've done the number the number zero intro i think or another's okay. episode one intro yeah here it is 51 lectures i'm we're looking at it right now just to <laughs> yeah so, sorry it's hard to keep track of you know it's been uh it's been 50 hours almost 50 hours which is you know a standard good work week but still you know, okay spread out it does end on 51 it says here yeah yeah i think it's 51 or 50 i'm sorry no 50. 50 yeah yeah right here last episode is 50 it's on tillich and barfield ah yes that is yeah that's the last episode then hey we're closer than i thought yeah, next episode is corbin and young yep then tillich and barfield and then he goes into another series that's attached in this playlist yeah but oh, this is somebody else's playlist, yeah it looks like yeah, yeah. but th there's some great conversations here i see one with zachary stein he works in education i think He's I, I think we, He's i think we mind. only have two left i'm just uh yeah no you're right I, we, i'm we not do technology only... savvy so you'll have to forgive me that's okay yeah we have two left sweet well hey two left and then we're going to take a little bit of a break to get the studio set up yeah. put things together maybe we'll reach out to some people connected to john maybe we'll bring them on the show maybe john himself will come on at some point as well yeah um so figuring all that out so we can get a uh, better quality of presentation um, absolutely I with what we're doing now we're getting better accuracy to the material we're talking about through learning this and then um 
Well, we are we are not the experts. No, we're just students of life here along so with all of you, inviting you along for the ride. And we are very grateful for all of you that have joined us here. Even if you've only experienced two minutes of this, you pressed the button, your aspiration <laughs> took you here, and we absolutely celebrate and encourage that. So thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode of Actual Eye Podcast and Meaning Making 101. We will see you uh, next Wednesday, potentially. If not the Wednesday after that, it'll be 7 P.E.S.T. as always here on YouTube, on Twitch, and on Facebook. You can also always listen through the entire full episodes on Actual Eye Podcasts through Spotify, Google, Apple, all the places. So make sure that you uh, throw a rating down for us. Like and subscribe wherever you can, guys. It helps so much. Once again, love you all. Thank you so much for tuning in. I've been Chris. I've been DJ. And we'll see you next time. Meow.